is prayer and we're looking at this short series in the life of Elijah in the Old Testament and the title, The Man Who Prayed. We've looked at Elijah praying for drought, last week praying for life and today praying for fire. And it will help to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles around in the pews. Just turn around or look around. Uh, take one and you need one in front of you to follow where we're going this morning. I'm not planning to read it again, actually. All that the children read was pretty much from the text itself and we'll be referring to it as we go along. 1 Kings 18, it's page 359 if you have a pew Bible. And as we read and reflect together, I trust that we've come together to hear what God is going to say to us as individuals and as a church. For three and a half years, and with increasing desperation, the people of Israel had searched the skies for any sign of rain, but to no avail. For three and a half years, and with increasing exasperation, the king of Israel had searched for any sign of the prophet Elijah, but to no avail. Nothing could or would change the situation until at last one day Elijah receives further marching orders. Verse 1, chapter 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The meeting, when it finally occurs, is not a meeting of minds. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Who is to blame for the disastrous drought? That is the question. No rain, who's to blame? Is it Elijah who has somehow offended the Baals, the Canaanite gods of the weather? Or is it Ahab and his family who have offended the Lord, the God of Israel, by following these gods? It is time to settle the issue once and for all. And Elijah sets the venue and King Ahab summons the people and the prophets of Baal to assemble on Mount Carmel overlooking the Mediterranean Sea way up in the north of Israel. It's time for a showdown. Carmel is a well-chosen spot. Not just because it provides a natural amphitheater for thousands of people to observe the action that will take place, but also because it straddles the border, the northern border of Israel, over into Phoenicia, where wicked Queen Jezebel and her followers came from. A picture of the divided loyalties of the people of Israel. As Elijah throws down his challenge to them in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now will you notice, first of all, as we come to this section of scripture, that this challenge is addressed to the people of God. It is not addressed to Jezebel and her followers. All they know is Baal, and his service is slavery. The people of Israel know the Lord. 
And in his service is freedom. Freedom to follow him, or freedom to go your own way and follow after other gods. And despite all the love that God has shown to this people over so many centuries, they are still seduced by what Baal offers. The abandonment of all moral constraints, and they are willfully oblivious to where it always ends in slavery. And so it is for all of us who know the Lord. If there is a battle at this point in your life, a battle for your allegiance, either to follow the Lord or to worship other idols, to go your own way, to do your own thing, then can I say it is almost certainly a sign that you are a believer and that you know the Lord and that you belong to him. Or, or, you may be a person who is not yet a Christian and God has begun to touch your life and there is a battle taking place at this moment for your allegiance. Either way, if there is a battle going on in your life at this moment, be encouraged. For were it not so, you would be dead in sin, oblivious to God, careless of your future. And in this situation, what we often try to do is to have our cake and eat it. Even King Ahab, wicked King Ahab and his queen, give their children names that include the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God. Perhaps he thinks he and his people can keep a foot in both camps. They can worship the Lord and they can worship Baal. So Elijah's challenge is addressed to the people of God who want to keep a foot in both camps. But as one far greater than Elijah would say, you cannot serve two masters. And as the risen Lord Jesus would say to a church, I know your deeds, you are neither hot nor cold, I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The one thing God cannot stand is lukewarmness. Half-heartedness. If he is God's servant, and if not, go your own way. For the Lord God is described as a jealous God. Jealousy, of course, is a neutral emotion. Among most of us, it is a negative emotion. But for the Lord, it is a pure, passionate concern for the welfare of his people and the honour of his name. Like that of the husband for his wife who is in danger of being seduced. And Elijah the prophet shares that same passionate zeal, same word in Hebrew and Greek, zealous, jealous. He says later, I, am, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts and for the Lord's people. Here is a battle for the life and soul of the people of God. And now after three and a half years of judgment by drought, it is time to choose. It is time to stop literally limping along, hobbling along between two opinions. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But still the people will not get off the fence. They have nothing to say in the face of the challenge. But the people said nothing. They are silenced probably partly by guilt and fear, but mostly they are silenced, I believe, by indecision. They still don't want to commit themselves. They still want to keep a foot in both camps. So I begin by asking you this morning, are you a wholehearted follower of the Lord God and of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't mean do you know him. 
I don't mean, can you look back and say, yes, I became a Christian on such and such a day, last year, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? I mean this morning, are you a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ, with undivided loyalties, with that pure devotion that he deserves? The people of Israel are limping along between two opinions. So, what will convince them? What will enable them to make the right choice? What will save them? A decisive showdown or contest between the prophet of the Lord and the prophets, all 450 of them. The text isn't absolutely clear what happened to the 400 prophets of Asher. It seems that they didn't turn up on the contest. It's a contest won between 450. And so we turn from the challenge to the contest. Now think for a moment. If you didn't know this story, maybe you've never read it before and this is the first time, great. I, I just love to be able to read the Bible for the first time if you understand what I mean because it's so familiar to so many of us what's coming next. But if you didn't know the story, what kind of contest would you expect? If we didn't know what follows, I guarantee all of us would have opted for a rain-making contest. After all, what's the issue about? Rain! Who controls the weather? Isn't that what everyone in Israel from the king on his throne to the beggar in the gutter once. They all want rain. They're desperate. The land is parched. The people are parched. Rain. That will show who the true God is and then we'll worship him. And that is what most of us think and that is what most of us pray for when we experience drought in our lives. Drought is the withholding of what we normally take for granted in our lives, what theologians call God's common grace. Now that may be, for many people in the world, rain. And many people in the world suffer from drought, literally. Until recently, in the last few weeks, we thought it was an impossibility, but it's been pretty dry here as well, hasn't it? However, more commonly for us, drought comes in our lives when God withdraws what we've taken for granted. Our health. A job a career, a loved one, a home. And those things that we enjoyed and assume are ours by right are taken away. And then, maybe only then, which is why God in mercy and love withdraws them, then and only then do we begin to ask why and who is to blame. And perhaps to pray and attend church. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe you're suffering drought. Something has happened in your life. Something you treasured has been taken from you. And for the first time in years, you're beginning to think, who's to blame? How can I get it back? And to promise, God, if you give me back what's been taken away, I will worship you and serve you. Can I say as gently and as firmly as I can, that your greatest need if you're living through drought is not rain. Let me say it again. Your greatest need if you are living through drought is not rain. Rain or the lack of it is only a symptom of a much deeper problem, a much greater need. This is not about rain. So what is it? You may ask. Elijah the prophet tells us, just as he told the people of Israel nearly 3,000 years ago. Listen to his words as he lays down his prayer challenge, verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, 
I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. It is not a rain-making contest. It is a fire-making contest. So the greatest need of the people of Israel at this point is not rain, but fire. Yes, as the Lord promised Elijah, as we've seen in the opening of this chapter, he will send the rain. But the fire must come first. For if it only rains, then the people of Israel will inevitably return to their old ways instead of returning to the Lord when the rain comes. And so will you and I. For I tell you this, and I'm absolutely convinced about this, if only 1% of the population of Edinburgh who have prayed 999 prayers to God in times of emergency and promised to follow him if he answered their prayers, if only 1% of them made good on their promises, I tell you something, you wouldn't have got in this church this morning for the crowds. Or in any church in Edinburgh. We make the promises. God gives us back and we forget the promises. No, our greatest need, your greatest need this morning, is not rain, but fire. What do I mean? What does it signify? Look again more closely at the details of the story. And Elijah's challenge. Notice what Elijah doesn't say. You imagine him standing on top of Mount Carmel, there'd been a drought for three and a half years. Carmel was still one of the most uh, greenest parts of the land that had subterranean springs, but let's suppose they're standing on top of Mount Carmel and Elijah says to the people and he shouts to the prophets of Baal and he says, look at that huge big tree up there, gaunt and bare, rotting from within by the drought, it's life gone from it. Let's pray. And the God that reduces the tree by fire, he'll be God. That would have been a legitimate fire challenge, would it not? Very impressive. Yet it is not the challenge which Elijah issues. Rather, notice what his proposal involves. It involves two crucial elements. It involves an animal and an altar. Did you see that? It involves an animal and an altar. And when you read that, immediately we come to see what, what this challenge is really about and what the need of the people is really. It's about worship. It's about sacrifice. And the fire or absence of it indicates whether the act of the worshippers is acceptable to God or not. The most important and defining question is not who controls the weather, but who can forgive sin? Who is acceptable to God? Elijah's challenge to the prophets of Baal is, can your God forgive sin? Does he accept your offering? This is an age-old question. Have you ever thought about it, the first murder in human history? What was it about? Worship. Cain and Abel. Both brought a sacrifice. One was accepted, the other wasn't accepted. People said the most stupid things. Religion brings people together. Nonsense. Separates people out. Because the defining question is, does God accept every sacrifice? Answer, no. The fire is the litmus test. And your greatest need and mine, as we'll see in a moment, 
It's not rain to solve our symptoms, restore the problem that we've got. Our greatest need is that we might be forgiven and put right with God and restored to him rather than being judged by him. So we turn then from the contest to the contestants. Elijah is in no doubt about the outcome. Despite the fact that he's outnumbered 450 to 1, he knows that the prophets of Baal are powerless. Despite the fact, and again, he's done it on their terms, Baal is supposed to be the sun god. He rides on the thunderstorm. He shoots lightning bolts to earth. So surely, surely if he's God, he can incinerate the sacrifice. But Elijah knows it is no contest. Now make no mistake, there are spiritual powers and beings around in the world today that can do all sorts of things, producing fire and all sorts of things. Those of us who have lived in the other parts of the world will know this is a spiritual reality. Increasingly in our own society, people have been taken in by the fact that spiritual powers can do certain things. What you need to ask is why they do them. But in this scenario, the powers of the evil one are impotent. They're caged and restrained by the power of the one true God. So Elijah the prophet is quite happy to let the prophets of Baal take first turn. He's in no doubt that he'll be needed later on in the day. And Elijah is not at all concerned. As the morning turns to noon and their shouting to Baal gets louder and louder and they're dancing all the more frenzied, no doubt it was a very colourful religion, even more so when they began to cut themselves and the red blood began to run down their bodies. Boy, it's the kind of thing that documentary makers would have wonderfully enjoyed putting on their screens on Channel 4 and telling us about this wonderful kind of religion that you see in certain parts of the world. Baal religion, like much human religion, is full of life and colour, but the prophets of Baal are missing, if not passionate. People say, if you're sincere about your religion, that's what counts. Listen, these boys from Baal were very sincere. They leapt around, around the altar. They cut themselves, they were that sincere. But all to no avail. Elijah resorts to ridicule, shout louder, surely he's a god, maybe he's busy thinking about some problem. Literally, it's very crude in the original Hebrew. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Or he's gone away on a holiday. Or he's fallen asleep and needs to be woken up. Now, it's obvious that Elijah would not have been a successful participant in interfaith dialogue. And many have criticized him for his lack of respect to Canaanite religion. I wonder if we'd be so dispassionate if your son had been offered in the fire to the god Molech. Or your daughter drawn into cult prostitution. Would there not be a sense of outrage? If you're drawn away from the worship of the one true God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're justified in using the kind of terms that Elijah does. I'm not suggesting that we don't need to understand what other people believe in order to relate to them. I'm not suggesting that all the great religions of the world share certain ethical things in common. But what I'm saying, the fundamental issue at stake is whether Baal or any other person or object is God or not. And the test of that is, can your God bring you into a relationship with himself? Can he forgive your sin? Can he answer by fire? And Baal does not, and his prophets are impotent. They are passionate, but powerless. And as their bloodied bodies slump to the ground in exhaustion, Elijah, the second contestant, steps forward, the prophet of the Lord. Now will you notice that all that Elijah does is in sharp contrast to what the prophets of Baal have done. There are no hours of ecstasy, dancing, shouting, screaming, bloodletting. No, he speaks 
He steps forward and he speaks the word of the Lord. It's a wonderful word. We don't have time to look at it, but just reflect on it. The first thing he says is, come here to me. It's God's invitation to his way with people. Come to me. Draw near. He doesn't say, stay away, you people. You've offended God greatly. He says, come here to me. And before he prays, he prepares. Notice that preparation always precedes prayer. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Now notice what Elijah did. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. There's been a lot of scholarly speculation as to why Elijah sacrificed at an altar on Mount Carmel when the Lord had forbidden any worship other than in Jerusalem in the temple. All we can say that is Elijah was acting in accordance with God's will. There were exceptional circumstances. The kingdom of Israel had been divided into two after the death of Solomon. And notice that this was an altar to the Lord that had to be repaired. And before the temple was delegated by the Lord as the one true place of worship, there were altars in different places. The prophet Samuel worshipped in them from time to time at the time of the judges. And this, this one in Mount Carmel, right on the border, was one of them. The altar is repaired. The important thing is that an altar was necessary for a sacrifice had to be made. And this has been God's way ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were driven from God's presence. Only an altar and a sacrifice enables us to approach God. So Elijah built, rebuilt the altar of the Lord which was in ruins. True repentance always begins with repairing and rebuilding what is broken instead of inventing something new. True repentance means going back in time and history to God's prescribed ways. Notice what Elijah does. It's all laid down. He's following instructions as he does this. Elijah, verse 31, took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. The altar is built as altars were from the Lord. They were not dressed stones. They were not polished and made to look very nice. They were taken as rough-hewn stones. One writer said, they used what God had provided, not what man had made. And why twelve stones? Well, one for each of the tribes of Israel, descended from Jacob, the chief who became Israel. But this is Israel. There are only ten tribes in Israel. The other two are in the divided kingdom down south. Ah, but Elijah sees beyond that. He sees the united people of God, united around an altar where sacrifice is made for sin. So Elijah rebuilds the altar with twelve stones. Then he takes the sacrificial bull and cuts it in pieces and lays it on the wood. Another question, if you know the Bible, you would have thought why he chose a bull, not a lamb or a goat? Interesting to know how many people know the answer. The answer is, of course, that the bull was the delegated sacrifice for the priest for his own sin before he made preparation for the sins of the people. You'll see that in Leviticus chapter 4. Elijah identifies with the people of God. He realizes that his own sin needs to be dealt with if he's to plead effectively with God on behalf of the people. So the bull is prepared. And then Elijah does this strange thing, one not included in the law of Moses. He digs a trench all around the altar and orders 12, another reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 large jars of water to be poured over the offering and the wood until it runs down and fills the trench around the altar. Now, there's been much speculation about two questions. I'll deal with them very quickly. First of all, where did he get the water from in the middle of a drought? There are two possible answers. There's a very deep spring near this site on Mount Carmel, which may be why he chose that place in the first, in the first instance. Others suggest that it's close to the Mediterranean that seawater was brought up from the sea 
and it was poured on the altar because sacrifices also had to include salt and maybe there's some inclusion of that there. No one's absolutely sure. The second question is, why did he pour water on top of it? Now we can dismiss all these stupid theories that some of us had to learn when we went to theological college that what he actually got was oil from a well or liquid naphtha and then he got a mirror and turned it up to the sun and set the thing on fire. As I constantly said to people who tried to teach me this nonsense, it's harder to believe that than the real story. Really. Why does he do it? Well, it's obvious. He does it so that no one can be in any doubt of the impossibility of about what's going to happen. They can't look back and say, well, hang on a minute. It, it, you know, it's very dry at that time and it could have been spontaneous combustion. What, when everything's drenched in water? Pretty difficult. And now preparation's complete, it's time for prayer. Notice the timing, which again is no accident. Look at verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. You can miss these details unless you know the Bible. Well, what's the time of sacrifice? Slight correction to the children's story. It wasn't five o'clock in the afternoon. It was actually the evening sacrifice, which is rather confusing, it took place at three o'clock in the afternoon, three hours before sunset. And when it says at the time of sacrifice, what is it saying? It is saying, Elijah knows that as he makes this sacrifice at this specific time, over the border, in Jerusalem, in the temple, there will be priests offering sacrifices to God, acceptable in his sight. And he is identifying with the people of God, offering a sacrifice in the way and at the time that God has prescribed, knowing that the Lord will hear and answer his prayer. And confident in that, Elijah steps forward. Look what he says and prays in verse 36 and 37, which proves, if nothing else, that to be powerful, prayer doesn't need to be eternal or very long. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you're turning back their hearts again. A wonderful prayer. Could spend the next half an hour, hour just looking at it. Don't have time. But notice it's not driven by any need for personal vindication or as some have stupidly suggested for vengeance. No, Elijah's concern is the Lord's honour and word which are inextricably linked up with him and his ministry as he speaks on behalf of the word of the Lord. The prophet of the Lord and the Lord himself are tied together. And if one goes and he's discredited, both are discredited. What Elijah is praying for is at the end of his prayer, and when God answers, he's praying, not that the people will shout in a loud voice, Elijah, he is the prophet, but rather the Lord, he is God. And Elijah knows something very fundamental, which every pastor needs to know, and every Christian worker and Sunday school teacher needs to know, that there's no way anyone will change their minds or their hearts unless God does it. And so he prays, answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O God, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. It is a prayer that God will answer by changing the minds of the people and turning the hearts of the people. Notice finally then the conclusion. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil licked up the water in the trench. Out of a clear blue sky with not a cloud in sight, fire falls from heaven, falls on the sacrifice and consumes it and the altar. 
how or by what means we do not know, a fireball, lightning, whatever it may be, or just simply an act of God. It's a miracle. Now, another question. What is the miracle? Most people would answer, well, it's obvious. The miracle is that fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. That's true. But there is an equal and greater miracle, and it is this, that the fire fell from heaven and did not consume the people. The greater miracle is that the fire fell from heaven and did not consume the people. What does God's fire speak of? It speaks of God's judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 12. It speaks of judgment, burning up what is unworthy. Consuming what is corrupt. Now, worthy is not unworthy and corrupt people. You'll be hard pushed to find more persistently unworthy and corrupt people. They deserve the judgment of God. If justice were to be done, then the fire would fall on them and consume them, and no one could quibble one iota about the justice of God. But the miracle is that the fire fell on the sacrifice instead. That is why it was consumed. That is why Elijah offered it in the first place. That is why he couldn't ask for rain straight away, as we'll see next week, God willing, in our continuing series when he prays for rain. You can't pray for the rain until the fire has fallen. Otherwise there will be no people to experience it. The drought was a sign of God's judgment and must continue forever until the last one of them is dead if justice is to be done. And only a sacrifice can avert the judgment so that people might be forgiven and the rain restored. You cannot have the rain without the fire. And so I come back to us here this morning, those of us who have come here this morning, because God has withdrawn something in our lives. Those of us who are trying to limp along between two opinions. Those of us who have come here and said, I need help with my marriage, I need help with my career, I'm feeling depressed and down, I need to be more happy, can you help me in this church? And the answer is yes, we can help you treat the symptoms, but only God can deal with the cause which is that you're estranged from God, far from God, and God wants to draw you back to himself, and he's made a way by which you may be forgiven. Your greatest need is not rain, but repentance and forgiveness. And you can only repent if God turns you to himself. People sometimes say, and we all think, don't we, well, if I sin, I can always repent and go back to God. Listen, repentance is a very hard thing. True repentance. To really turn to God without just mouthing the words. And that is why if God is speaking to you this morning and He's turning your heart, don't turn back. May not happen again. And what brings about any hope for any of us? Only a miracle in which the sacrifice and not the sinner is consumed. This miracle is a miracle of salvation for the people of God. And the Lord says to his people, come here to me. Now the good news is this. This morning we come not to Carmel, but to Calvary, to another mountain. And as we look at the sacrifice, here is no prophet of God, but the Son of God. Himself the sacrifice, not a bull, but a lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here, at exactly the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, on that day we call Paradox of Good Friday, at three o'clock in the afternoon, a sacrifice is made for sin, once for all. And a prayer is prayed, 
A prayer that is unanswered. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. Here's this mountain, Calvary. And about the ninth hour of sacrifice, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the people thought he was calling for Elijah. But when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. You see, finally there is an answer from heaven. For the curtain that separates sinners from a holy God, Matthew records, when it happened, God's answer, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And a means was opened up, the kingdom of heaven, open to all believers, restricted to Jews, now open to Gentiles, thank God, like you and me. A way back to God, through the sacrifice of Jesus. He bore the judgment that we deserved, so that we might know God's forgiveness and not be consumed. That is the greatest miracle of all. Now I'm nearly finished, but what is your response? The people on Mount Carmel fell flat on their faces and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And when we come to the cross of Christ, we cry, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, not everyone fell prostrate and cried, Jesus is Lord, on that day. The prophets of Baal remained standing, exposed as false prophets who had led the people astray and therefore condemned to execution by the law of Moses. That could have been averted by their conversion, but they refused to acknowledge the Lord. And the conclusion of this miracle is not just salvation for the people of God, but judgment on the prophets of Baal as they're taken away and executed. Now, again, people don't like this. In our modern day, they say, well, that's barbaric. Terrible thing. Not the kind of thing Jesus would have done. And it is true that we're not in the same position before God in respect of judicial law as Israel was. We have no mandate and should have no desire to execute unbelievers. But the justice of God is still the same. And the judgments of God are still the same. This same Lord Jesus will one day return to judge the world. And he said that we have far more evidence than the people of Sodom or Gomorrah, far greater proof than the prophets of Baal and Carmel, and so if we fail to believe, the judgment will even be more and greater and more severe. Listen to the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth, said Jesus, whoever hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself so he's granted the Son to have life in himself he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. These are the words of Jesus, not my words. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, that time has not yet arrived. Today is the day of grace, a day of opportunity. It is time to stop wavering between two opinions. Now I address this to two groups of people here. First of all, I address it to those of you here who are Christians, who are trying to live in two camps at once. Oh, we're here on Charlotte Chapel on Sunday, but during the rest of the week we live a different kind of life. Our allegiance is divided. Our love is diluted. 
And I simply say to you, you cannot serve two masters. It will not work. If you continue this way, you will end up not serving the Lord at all. You may not be here in church. You may still keep coming to church week by week. And maybe you're in that position. It's like water off a duck's back. And you've turned your back on the Lord. Now today is maybe God's day of opportunity for you. And the Lord says in lift, you come here to me. You need forgiveness, restoration. Time to stop limping between two opinions. Time to choose. To make up your mind. To get off the fence. And I speak to those of you who as yet are not Christians. And maybe God has begun to work in your life. And you're dissatisfied with your way of life. And things have happened in your life that have spoke your life and it's made you think about God. Just be thankful that God cared enough to take away those things in order to turn you to himself before it's too late. Hard though it may seem. It's probably God's only way that he could do that. And if God is speaking to you this morning and you're, there's a battle going on in your life and you're torn between two opinions, the word of God to you today is, how long will you keep on halting, limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. The Lord will not settle for a half-hearted commitment. It's time to choose. And maybe this is your day. This is the place. Here in Charlotte Chapel. And the word of God says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now is God's time. Today is the day of salvation. Now let's pray together.